Well, as I mentioned before, we're going to be starting a new series in the book of Joel now. And it's normal, isn't it, that when you start a series in a book, you sort of give a bit of a background to the book that you're going to be looking at. And this is probably the easiest introduction to a book I'll ever have to do, or possibly the hardest, depending on which way you look at it. Do you remember at school when you, you sort of had to have a word count, or at university, if you went to university, and you sort of had to make sure that you got to the right number of words? And you found ways to sort of string things out. So, you know, in my humble opinion, taking in all the facts into account and factoring in all the evidence and, and so on, but then you'd end it with, we don't know. Well, that's basically the background to Joel. Who is Joel? Well, I've read quite a few books this week. I've read quite a few commentaries, some quite in-depth, technical. And after doing all that, the answer is, we don't know. All we know is that from verse 1, his father is Pethuel. That's pretty much all that we know about Joel. When was it written? Answer, we don't know. There's at least five different theories as to the date of Joel. It seems that the only thing we could definitely say, or almost definitely say, is that it's after the northern kingdom of Israel has fallen, because it's not really mentioned uh, in the book. Uh, other than that, we simply don't know. What's the situation in the land? Well, we know there's been a plague of locusts. You might have got that uh, earlier on. Um, other than that, we don't know. Is there a king? Is there not a king? We don't know. And this makes the book difficult in some ways as you try and uh, think through how it applies and, uh, and what it means. But in other ways, it makes it a timeless book, a book that speaks across time. So much in it is applicable to where so many different people are. Like I say, there's those five different periods where it could fit in. It's a timeless message, but because of that, it's also a timely message. Wherever we're at this morning... However we're feeling, however our week's been, wherever we are in the Christian life, the book of Joel has something to say to us, because it's a timeless message. But there are some tough things in the book, and I'm going to start off this morning by talking about two unfamiliar ideas. Now, I am not an animal expert, um, but uh, the book does talk an awful lot about locusts. Uh, I have owned two goldfish both of which starved of, uh, died of starvation. Uh, I've owned some stick insects that died. I think I, I lost them. I had a hamster called Dan, uh, who died, but of natural causes. You'd be uh, good to hear. My, my next door neighbour buried theirs when it hibernated, so I feel that's a win. Um, I did briefly own a few locusts, uh, but only for a school assembly. So I'd hardly call myself an expert. And in fact, the locusts, they died too. Uh, but locusts were a fairly common animal in, in the Middle East at the time. In the ancient world, they're, they're mentioned all the time. Now, because I'm not an animal expert, I'm actually going to get David Attenborough, not in person, here this morning, just to explain to us a bit about locusts. Because actually, it's going to be really key to understanding what we're talking about in the book. Because if we're just thinking one or two insects, we're not going to understand why this is... So, that should give you an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about a plague of locusts. This is something absolutely huge and devastating. And we'll come back to, to look at how that fits in the passage, but that should hopefully give you uh, a bit of background to what we're talking about. The other unfamiliar idea that we have in the passage is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when God acts in mighty power against his enemies. The day of Yahweh, the Lord, the Almighty. And really what it does is pick up on the idea of what happened at the Exodus, when God overturned the odds. 
and destroyed the Egyptian army. And even right back there in Exodus, it's referred to as the day. And throughout the prophets, there's this promise of another day when God would destroy evil in a similarly dramatic way. The day of the Lord. The bit of a twist that starts to happen in the prophets, though, is that as we go on, it becomes clear that Israel is included in this day. God's people, too, will be judged. God is not just going after the enemies of the people, but evil itself, which lies at the root uh, of all rebellion. So the day of the Lord, as it's talked about, is a cataclysmic day when the tables are turned over and evil will be defeated. But through the prophets, there are foretastes of it before that day comes. And in Joel, we'll see one with this plague of locusts, a picture of what is to come. As we get to the New Testament, we get a fuller understanding of that day, but we'll save that for as we go through uh, the series. So those are our two unfamiliar ideas. Well, what is happening in Joel then? Well, firstly, disaster strikes. Let me read to you 2 to 13 again. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and its fangs has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth. For the bridegroom of her youth, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord, the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And the gladness of man dries up from the children. Sorry, the gladness dries up from the children of man. Joel's message here, if you notice through this, is for everyone. Everyone has been affected. This has literally been a disaster on a biblical scale. And he says at the beginning, this is the sort of thing that you tell your children and your grandchildren. The closest I could think of it for sort of modern day was the hurricane of 1987. Uh, so I grew up with everybody talking about the hurricane, you know, when Michael Fish said that there wouldn't be a hurricane. And it's sort of the thing you, you tell to your children. But it's much bigger than that though, isn't it? But it's the sort of thing you pass on. Or think about if you were in New York on September the 11th, 2001. Something on a scale that's never been seen before. Something that you really would tell other generations. Well, this is what Joel is talking about here. What's happened? Well, a swarm of locusts has devastated the land. Now, David Attenborough told us that storms, sorry, swarms can be 40 miles across. 
Israel, at whatever point we're talking about here, was only 40 miles across. It literally could cover the length, or sorry, the width of the land, just one swarm. There are even bigger ones recorded in history. He's talking about what sort of happens fairly normally. But there are even bigger ones that are recorded. Even a non-supernatural swarm could easily devastate a small country like Judah or Israel. Here it's once in a lifetime. It's the thing you tell your grandchildren about. And different locusts are mentioned here, aren't they? Destroying everything. It's probably the different life stages of a, a locust that it's talking about. Successively arriving and consuming everything in their path until absolutely everything is destroyed. Now you might think that's sad in terms of an ecological disaster. But actually it's much more than that. The total annihilation of the crops in the land spells economic, social and even religious Armageddon. This isn't just the countryside that's spoiled. This means that there's no food in the land. And there won't be for quite some time. This means famine. This means hunger. This means starvation. And the livestock will starve too. I think we find it a bit hard because we're not really a farming group, are we? But imagine if somehow there was some sort of plague or or some event that wiped out all the food on the supermarket shelves. And all the food in transit to the supermarkets. Imagine imagine the, the riots in the streets if that were to happen. I mean, you know, you almost run out of bread in Sainsbury's. And there's almost like a, a me riot, isn't there? Imagine if everything was taken out. It'd be pandemonium, wouldn't it? There'd be fights over food that anybody had. The government would be seriously in danger of falling and chaos would ensue. This is the sort of level that we're talking about here. Or think about the financial crash of 2007 and 2008. Imagine if the banks had actually fallen. Life savings the world over, gone in a matter of days. Chaos over the world as money evaporates overnight. Well, this is the kind of situation that we're dealing with here. Everybody is affected. It's meltdown in the land of Israel, in the land of Judah. And everybody is affected. Have a look at verse 5. Awake you drunkards and weep, and wail all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. You see, here we have the lowest in society, the drunkards. They're told to weep because there'll be no more cheap, sweet wine. The grapes that would be used to make them are gone. In verse 11, the farmers, the workers of society are told to weep, because their harvest has been destroyed, their livelihood has been wrecked. In verse 9, the respected in society, the priests, are mourning. They can't offer sacrifice because there's nothing to sacrifice. Suddenly, the religious life of the nation is in meltdown. How do you run a sacrificial system when there's nothing to sacrifice? And how do you eat as a priest if your food depends on the sacrifices that people bring? This could be potentially a death sentence for the priests. Everyone in the land is to mourn like a virgin whose long-betrothed fiancé dies uh, before the wedding. It's almost as though they've been betrothed in childhood, but she never even got a chance to get married to her fiancé. Doomed to a life of singleness without provision for her future. They're told to lament, to cry, to wail out loud to God. 
This is utterly devastating. The very ground itself mourns in verse 10 because the food is gone. Grain, wine, oil, wheat, barley, figs, grapes, pomegranates, palms, apples, all of them are mentioned as having gone. And in verse 17, the grain stores decay because there's no grain to put in them. All is dried up. All is gone. All is destroyed. Israel is pictured as a fig tree stripped even of its bark, splintered and laid waste, utterly decimated. The locusts are pictured as a nation of lions biting and devouring until all is gone. And the result for Israel? Well, as the food dries up, so their hope dries up too. At the end of verse 12, you see gladness dries up from the children of man. Hope is gone. Happiness is gone. Even in the house of the Lord, in verse 16, the gladness is gone. All that remains is gloom. So it's no wonder, in a way, that Joel uses this to point us to the day of the Lord in verse 15. Have a look there. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction comes from the Almighty, it comes. This is like a mini apocalypse, a mini Armageddon, a foretaste of the end. It's a bit like, you know, there's a, a real habit now that films that are quite big, they put out a teaser trailer. So if you come across this and sort of it's just a two minute sort of clip that shows you some things about the film. Well, that's what it's doing here. It's giving us some clue about the big day by showing us this devastation here. This is but a hint of that terrifying day of the Lord as it approaches. But the thing is, with this one, this one has already happened. This isn't so much prophecy as Joel writes this, as commentary. Disaster has already struck. And Joel here is now going to tell them how to respond to that disaster. But before we think how to respond, we need to notice two things that are missing in this picture that we're given. The two things that are missing so far are sin and judgment. Sin and judgment. No sin, if you notice, has been mentioned so far. We've had drunkards mentioned, but it's not singled out as the reason for the plague coming. And we're calling it a plague, but actually we're not told of any involvement by God so far. The closest that you get is verse 15, where it talks about the day of the Lord coming. But that's seemingly pointing us to the future. At this point in the book, if you think about it, if you look through uh, the verses, God is noticeably absent you see, when I was coming to Joel, I've never preached on Joel before, I've never heard it preached before. You sort of, you come with expectations, don't you? You think, right, it's going to be simple. It's going to be sin, judgment, repentance. That's basically what it's going to be. That's most prophets. But here at this point, there doesn't seem to be any sin. There doesn't seem to be any mention that God is bringing this plague of locusts. Just that this disaster has happened. At this point, this could have just been a natural disaster. Now, of course, God is behind this, because ultimately God's behind everything, isn't he? But there's no mention of a specific sin or a specific judgment at this point. That will come in Joel, don't worry, it is coming, but not in chapter 1. Here at this point, um, the, the, the thing is quite ambiguous, isn't it? It's not quite clear what's going on. 
The encouraging thing with that, though, is that's often how it is with us, isn't it? As we face disaster. Something bad happens, even on a big, either on a big scale, like 9-11 or a tsunami or a plague of locusts. Or something on a relatively small scale, when you look at those things, a, a breakdown in a relationship, a, an illness, financial troubles. And we begin to ask those questions, don't we? Why has this happened? Is this God's judgment? Is it God's correction? Is it due to some sort of specific sin? And nine times out of ten, or maybe even 99 times out of 100, we come up with this answer. I don't know. We don't know if it's God's judgment or correction. We don't know if it's some specific sin in our life or in someone else's. Does that mean that there's nothing we can do? No. Even in this context, even when we don't know what's happening, Joel still has things to tell them. Even when we don't have a clue why disaster is striking, there's still good things to do. And that brings us to our next point, what to do when disaster strikes. He tells us in verses 14, uh, sorry, 13 to the end, I'll read them to us again. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction comes from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of the Lord our God. Sorry, from the house of God. The seed shrivels under the clods, and storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you. Because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. What we need to do when disaster strikes is get a grip. Here we go. I won't do this every week. I know I've done this a couple of times recently. But I mean by that, gather, reflect, eyes and pray. I know it sounds a little bit cheesy, but actually when disaster strikes, we actually need things that we can grab hold of quite quickly, don't we? Because that's actually when we don't think very well. So the first thing he tells us to do is gather. Now we're told that at the beginning of uh, verse 14. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. It seems a strange place to start when disaster strikes, but that's what he tells them to do. There's been a disaster, gather the people. And we mustn't miss this. From time immemorial, when there's been a crisis, the church has gathered together. When Jesus died, the church gathered in the days in between. When John and Peter were arrested, the church gathered. When Peter was put in prison, the church gathered. When there was sin in the church at Corinth, the church gathered to deal with it. At a time of crisis, the church gathers. Often, but not always, to gathering to pray. We'll come to that in a minute. But think about it, they could have prayed at home, couldn't they? They could have prayed as individuals. But they didn't. 
when there's a crisis, the church gathers. Why are we to gather when disaster strikes? Well, two reasons. The first is care and mutual support. In the case of Joel, the whole nation really was involved. So all needed to gather together. And it's also true in the church, there can be disasters that affect us all, can't there? But equally, it's true that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. So 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Or 2 Corinthians 11, who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? We're not to face disaster alone. God has given us others for care and support through those disasters, even when we have no idea what's going on. The second reason that we gather is that there's work to be done. God is going to ask them to do things together as they gather. Mainly our next point, which is reflect. Reflect and reflect reverently. He tells them in verse 14 to consecrate a fast, to call a solemn assembly. He tells them to hold a fast. That's when you don't eat for a while, if you don't know what the word means. And it's a more controversial topic than you might think. It's controversial because the practice is really common in the Old Testament, but it seems to disappear a lot in the New Testament. It's quite rare. It's only really mentioned in the Gospels and the Acts. It's not mentioned at all in the letters. There are no commands in the letters out there to pray, but there are no commands in the letters to fast. So some Christians think that it's normal to fast, whereas some see it as an overhang from the Old Testament. Some think it's not appropriate for the New Testament church to fast, whereas others think we should carry on as they did. But fasting, to help us think about this, is more than just stopping eating for a while. If you think about it, the locusts will stop them eating for a while, won't they? That's partly what they've done. It seems strange to call a fast when part of the problem is there's no food. There's a purpose to fasting. It's linked with repentance. So think about Jonah, where the people of Nineveh are called to repent, and they fast as well. It's linked with worship. So Acts 13, verse 2, uh, which is on the back of your sheets. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and it it goes on. But it seems as though just something they were doing uh, as they were worshipping. I wonder what uh, reply I'd get if I said we were going to have a worship day. And that involved not eating. Everything in Bethel seems to involve eating, doesn't it? Um, it's linked with important decisions. So Acts 14, uh, 23. When they appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. But in all these situations, it's to do with a humbling of ourselves before God and taking time to reflect on the situation. The solemn assembly that's mentioned in verse 14 is actually a day when there's no work. It's like an extra Sabbath that they could call. So there's no work. There's no food. Just time to pray and reflect without distraction. I don't know if you've ever done fasting, but one thing it definitely does is focus the mind. And that's what they're to do. They're to focus, they're to reflect on what is happening. Whatever we think about fasting, when disaster strikes, we need to take time to reflect. Perhaps with others as we gather Uh, together to think about what is happening whether there is sin that we need to repent of whether we do need to change our ways whether we have turned from the lord we do that in a reverent and a serious way whether we eat or we don't eat 
But too often we miss this step. We jump straight to, to praying without thinking about the situation, reflecting reverently on what is happening. The third thing we're to do to get a grip is eyes. Uh, I struggled really to find a word that began with I, so I've, I've gone with this one. But what I mean by that is it's okay to let tears flow. It's okay to cry when disaster strikes. You'll notice all the way through this passage, again and again, they're told to weep. They're told to wail. They're told to cry. They're told to lament. It's just annoying that none of those words begin with I, unfortunately. But the idea that big boys and big girls don't cry is not from the Bible. It's from the Stoics. It's from the stiff upper lip brigade. Jesus tells us, doesn't he, to weep with those who weep. Jesus himself wept. And he was the most together man that you could ever meet. To remain unmoved in the face of disaster, be it our own or the disaster with others, is not a virtue. There are bad motives to weep, of course. The drunk missing his drink, for example. But there are good reasons to weep as well. The death of the vulnerable. The destruction of livelihoods. The desecration of the land. Or just because it hurts is a good reason to cry. Disaster should move us. It's supposed to move us. And that can be quite hard, can't it? There's something that they talk about now called compassion fatigue. We get news nowadays from all across the world, don't we? In the olden days, you used to find out what happened locally. Uh, and not a lot used to happen locally. Well, not, not, not trying to do down local news, but it's not normally on the same scale uh, as the national news and international news. Now we hear about every disaster, don't we? And they can seem so many, partly because we're so connected now to the rest of the world. That compassion fatigue can pass into our day-to-day lives. We can hear of so many problems and burdens in people's lives. It can be hard to treat them all with the seriousness that they deserve. Even in our own lives, we can be so inundated with troubles that we don't have time to grieve those that have passed. And it's made even harder, isn't it, because we have often that stiff upper lip upbringing. It's not the dumb thing, it's not the part of our culture that I imagine so many of us have been influenced by. Now there's no quick answer to this, unfortunately, other than to give you permission to cry when disaster strikes. It really is okay. Jesus died when his friend Lazarus died. Uh, sorry, Jesus cried when his friend Lazarus died. Get that the other way around. But he did that in the full knowledge that he could raise him from the dead. It's not unchristian to cry in the face of disaster, as long as we're crying for good reasons. And then finally, we're called to pray. Now, it's described in two ways in our passage. In verse 14, it's described as cry, confusingly, but meaning to call out. So, um, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. The reason it's cry out is it's to do with intensity. When was the last time you cried out to the Lord? When was the last time your prayers were really from the heart rather than from a list? If it's been a long time, then perhaps that would be something to cry out to God about. Joel tells them to cry out to the Lord, plea with him. And this recognises God's control of the situation, doesn't it? 
Whether it is something specifically from the Lord, or whether it's just something general that is happening in a fallen world, God is still in control of it. The greatest tsunami, the most disastrous personal situation, God is in control. Cry to him. Run to him in prayer. Don't face it alone. Cry out to him. But notice here, they're to cry out to him together. Remember, that's what they were doing in Acts. Gathering together to pray to the Lord together. When disaster strikes, we're not supposed to face it alone. And that means we're to pray together, to gather to pray. And there's something special, isn't there, about gathering to pray? Especially when we're praying for something urgent and crucial. Perhaps we need to do that more as things happen just in life. But even with gathered prayer, it's easy to fall into a rut, isn't it? But gathering to pray is something special. We miss out if we miss out on this because it's something that's given for our encouragement. Can I share with you, I used to be pretty terrified at prayer meetings when I was a teenager. Um, I used to try and avoid them or, you know, just sit there. They used to do ones where you could tap the person next to you. I don't know if you've ever done that one in a prayer meeting where it sort of goes around in a circle. If you don't want to pray, tap the person next to you. And I was a serial tapper. I would just sort of sit there and, and tap the person next to me. But in one way, it's just something that you've got to get over. It's a common problem that lots of people have. You're not alone if you find that sort of situation. And if you want some tips about what you can do, then do, do chat to me afterwards. But gathering to pray is a good thing. It's there for our encouragement, not for our terrifying fear feelings. When disaster strikes, we gather. And part of that is to gather to pray. In some of the hardest points in my life, it's been such a blessing just to meet with someone, even just one person, to talk and to pray together. Sometimes I've not felt up to praying in the middle of disaster. But other times it's come with tears. But God is telling us to do this because it's best for us we're to cry out to the Lord the other way it's described in this passage is call Um, you see there in verse um, verse 19 to you O Lord I call now it's not a command here but it's a response modelled by Joel he calls upon the Lord what does it mean to call upon the Lord well in one sense it's something bigger than cry Especially as the context seems to shift from locusts to fire. Did you notice that at the end? It sort of strangely seems to move on from locusts to everything being on fire and drying up. At this point, the very creatures themselves groan and cry out to God. Because the the picture is so devastating. It's almost like hell is being overlaid on this image of the locust invasion. Or perhaps the burning of the elements at the end sort of merging into this vision. This is the day of the Lord sort of breaking into this vision. And in this context, Joel calls on the name of the Lord. And that's not a small thing. Later on in Joel, and much quoted elsewhere in the Bible, Joel 2.32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a cry for salvation. It's a cry for rescue from the end. A cry which is more to do than just a plea for rescue from our temporal circumstances. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you asked him for rescue? Not from a plague of locusts, but from sin and hell. Have you come to that point where you've realised the desperate state that you are in without Christ? 
The day of the Lord began as Christ hung on the cross. There he defeated evil by taking it on himself and dying with it on the cross. He faced that terrifying judgment himself. And now we live in that day. A day when we can call upon the Lord and be saved. Have you ever done that? In one sense, it's the easiest thing you'll ever do. Because we don't bring our goodness, we don't bring our good works. All we have to offer him is our sin. But in one sense, it's the hardest, isn't it? We have to humble ourselves, admit that we cannot rescue ourselves and turn to him. But our time is limited. As Joel says, the day of the Lord is near. We have this time now to turn before real disaster strikes. So let's pray that God would work in our hearts to do that. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at this terrifying picture in Joel, we find it hard to get our heads round. Father, we pray that you would help us, though, in the disasters that we face, Father, in the difficulties that we face, not to trust in ourselves, but to turn to you. Father, pray that when people ask us to get a grip, we remember that it's not being good in ourselves, it's not depending on ourselves, but it's, Father, turning to you, gathering, reflecting, Father, crying if appropriate, and praying to you. Pray that you might be our refuge in those times of trouble. And Father, we pray that if there are those here this morning who haven't yet called upon your name, Father, we pray that you would do that work in their heart and enable them to call out to you for rescue. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.